When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by HBO and the new documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 23rd, 2015. On this week's show, Grantland's Eric Raskin will join us to discuss the boxing match that we thought would probably never happen, with Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao finally set to fight this May after five years of buildup. We'll then talk about Alex Rodriguez and Kobe Bryant, both of whom are aiming for media makeovers as their careers come to an end. We'll look at the new rules designed to make baseball speedier, and whether faster games will be any more exciting. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll look at the latest twists in Deflategate, which has somehow gotten more bizarre as we've moved on to alternate gates and miscellaneous gazis. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. He's very excited about an alternate spelling of kayak this week. There's a certain glimmer in his eye, bounce in his step. There's an extra or in his... There's an extra Q. <laughs> So how do you how do you spell it? Wait a second. We'll we'll pause to let the people guess how you alternately spell kayak. All right, that's enough of that's us. Enough how time. do you spell it? Q A J A Q. New word in the official Scrabble dictionary. Official Scrabble players dictionary, fifth edition. Came out last summer. The new words are taking effect in competitive Scrabble next month. Two months. Is kayak April. an Algonquin word? It's an Inuit. The Q A J A Q, I believe, is Inuit because uh, for the first time the the new Scrabble Dictionary included as a word source a Canadian dictionary, the Canadian Oxford Dictionary. So a lot of uh, a lot of weird. They're letting all these words in crazy there. dictionaries in. So how many Q, are there? One or two Qs in the in the game? One. So you have to spell that with a blank. How yeah. many words are there that are just impossible to spell because there aren't enough Zs plus blanks or whatever? There are like a ton. Pizzazz. That's the classic one. Yeah. What if you what spell that with two Qs? Rasmataz. <laughs> Pizzazz with two Qs. Yeah. Q-A-J-A-Q-Z-Z. Pizzazz. <laughs> I like the fact that the Inuit kayak and our Americanized, uh, Englishized version of it, both palindromes. That yeah. is cool. Did you, Mike Pesca, see what I tweeted over the weekend? The, Probably. The quote <laughs> from, boyhood, from Anthony. Was it Boyhood Got Robbed? It was not Sorry. Boyhood Got Robbed. Yeah. Uh, the Anthony Davis quotation in Sports Illustrated. It's the apotheosis of sports quotations. It was about him being uh, considered, one might say, 
for most valuable player in the National Basketball Association this year, and it's in Sports Illustrated. And Anthony Davis said, being in the conversation is definitely a blessing, but it's all about my team. <laughs> that is an incredible quotation. He, he hit learned, like three stations in like, the chorus on He that did. He, he did. He did. And he's only male. 21. And he's only 21. Yeah. His future is unlimited. <laughs> All right. But I, what has he won? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, Wait a minute. He won a college championship. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Mike Pasca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pasca. I'm sorry that it took so long for me to introduce you. No, it's we, fine. I think people... It's, it's like one of those movies where the credits come 20 minutes in. You're like, oh my God, we did forget about those. Tarantino used to do that a lot. Would you like to be and Mike Pesca? Should we have that contractually for you? Yeah, With and, as Mike pa- Pesca, and Mike Pesca as himself. And introducing... <laughs> Stefan Fatsis as, as the, the alternate spelling of kayak. All right, so every year the boxing publication Ring Magazine deems something the sports event of the year. And it tells you something about the state of boxing in the 21st century, that Ring's event of the year for 2010 wasn't anything that actually happened. It was the failure of Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao to agree to terms on a fight. Five years later, the event of the year will most likely be a real boxing match in which the two best pound-for-pound boxers of their generation punch each other in the face. That is going to be the tagline for the fight, Stefan. May 2nd, Las Vegas, Mayweather and Pacquiao punch each other in the face. Here to talk with us about that face punching is Eric Raskin, who writes about boxing for Grandland, Playboy, and HBO.com. He's the editor-in-chief of All In Magazine and the author of The Moneymaker Effect, the inside story of the tournament that forever changed poker. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. And uh, I should note, they, they might punch each other in the body as well. That just didn't Poor fit strategy, on the poster. That. <laughs> <laughs> didn't fit on the poster. Um, <laughs> Everyone has wanted to see this fight, Eric, since at least 2009. The obvious first question is, what took so long and who can we blame? Yeah, that's the question that we've been asking for the last five years or so of of who do we point the finger at uh, to to blame for this not happening sooner. Uh, Thankfully, we can finally move on from that question uh, pretty soon. You can move on in like 45 seconds after you answer the question. (laughs) Okay, that's that's fair. Technically, the reason it didn't happen in 2010 when it was first negotiated is that at the last second, after supposedly all the deal points had been agreed to, Mayweather threw in a stipulation that Pacquiao had to agree to random pre-fight drug testing, uh, which, while that doesn't seem like such a crazy demand now, in 2010, that had never been done for a fight before, and Manny refused, and the fight fell apart. And so, of course... Some people point the finger at Pacquiao that he had something to hide. Others point the finger at Mayweather that he was trying to sabotage the fight intentionally with this ridiculous demand. Uh, And ultimately, though, I think the reason that it didn't happen then but is happening now is they didn't need it as much then. The fans wanted it. It made all the sense in the world uh, with the two of them really peaking in that 2009-2010 range. But... Neither fighter needed it. If you break it down simply looking at what, what was happening in, say, Mayweather's career at that time, he was getting $25 million or so a fight to take on guys he was 95% sure he'd beat. To him, risking his undefeated record to make $50 million against a guy he was 80% sure he's beat, he would beat, that calculation didn't add up for Mayweather. He didn't need the fight. Pacquiao didn't need the fight. It has taken the fact that their pay-per-view numbers have come down a bit and they've kind of run out of opponents to make this fight happen five years after when it might have been ideal. And isn't this why we love boxing so much? Because the best athletes won't actually compete against each other when they should compete against each other. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, if you're going to be critical of the sport of boxing, that's a great place to start, that that you can't force fights to happen. On the other hand, it's kind of cool that the marketplace dictates who fights whom in boxing. Uh, you don't have a set schedule with mismatches that have to happen. Nevertheless, they do happen frequently, which is, uh, again, another knock on boxing. It's just a very, it's a sport that operates very differently from baseball, football, basketball, etc., 
And usually the fights that we all want to see happen eventually. This is not unprecedented that it would take five years for this fight to happen. You could say Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler was a similar situation, that it it took about five years to happen, but it did finally happen. There are only a handful of fights in history that the entire world was demanding that didn't eventually come together. Well, you could say this happened eventually, but the fight I wanted to see was not just the guys, the carcasses of Mayweather, who's still pretty much in his prime, Pacquiao, who's a diminished fighter. I wanted to see them at the height of their powers. So how much, you know, Pacquiao lost a couple times early in his career, but I think two of his last five fights have been losses. How much worse of a fighter is he than in 2010? I, I definitely think, uh, you know, using a term like carcasses is, is uh, an exaggeration. It is. I think both But it's fighters, boxing. I'm allowed to. <laughs> both fighters have slipped a bit from their absolute peaks. Even though Mayweather hasn't lost, his two close, difficult fights with the somewhat limited Marcos Maidana last year suggest he is starting to finally slow down a bit as he uh, hits his late 30s. Pacquiao, it's easier to point at his record and say that he is the more diminished of the two fighters because he does have those two defeats. But one of them was a ridiculous decision against Tim- Timothy Bradley. The other one, he got flattened, absolutely knocked unconscious by Juan Manuel Marquez. And at the moment that happened in 2012, it seemed to be the end of the Mayweather-Pacquiao saga. Uh, but Pacquiao has bounced back with three quality wins, looked excellent each time out. Uh, I-, I hate like putting percentages on what percentage of... Uh, of what he used to be is is an athlete now. <laughs> That's such an inexact science. But uh, nevertheless, if I'm going to do so, I'm going to say that both of these guys are somewhere around 90% of what they were in their prime. And it is probably about as competitive a fight now as it would have been five years ago. So you made an interesting argument on Granlund that I found quasi-convincing that a diminished you know, a 90% Mayweather versus 90% Pacquiao could actually be a more entertaining Fight. Can you explain your reasoning there? Yeah, this is something that we've seen often in boxing, that as these really elite defensive fighters, guys with tremendous reflexes, get a little older and those reflexes dull slightly and they become slightly easier to hit, they tend to make for better fights. The classic example would be Muhammad Ali, who was in so many classic fights in the 70s and wasn't in any truly thrilling great fights in the 60s when he was in his absolute prime. Uh, Mayweather is that kind of fighter, a defense-first fighter, uh, who three of his last five fights, the two I mentioned against Marcos Maidana and uh, when he fought Miguel Cotto, three of his last five fights have been difficult, competitive fights in which he had to take some punches, which during his absolute prime he was the kind of guy who would win all 12 rounds with ease against just about anyone. So there is that potential that he has slowed down enough that Pacquiao, who is a very fast fast fighter both with his hands and feet, will be able to hit Mayweather more than he might have in 2010, and that we could get a better action fight uh, than we would have otherwise. I suppose, though, if you wanted to make the counter-argument, you'd say that because Pacquiao has also slowed down a bit, he's still going to have trouble locating Mayweather. But I, I think there is a much lower chance now of the sort of fight where Floyd just makes Pacquiao miss for 12 rounds, wins a dull, clear-cut, near-shutout decision. I think that is a much less likely scenario than it, than it would have been uh, five years ago. All right, well, following up on that, Eric, tell us uh, stylistically how the fighters will approach each other and what has changed more specifically about their styles as they've uh, gotten older. Well, Mayweather uses his legs a little less than he used to. He has this shoulder roll defense uh, where he picks off punches and, and rolls with them and, and, and count, throws counter punches. He's, he's ultimately a, a natural counter puncher, uh, although he can be very effective when he does decide to be the aggressor. What Pacquiao has done since getting knocked out by Juan Manuel Marquez under his trainer, Freddie Roach, who who really reinvented Pacquiao back in 2005, 2006. He had been just a one-handed fighter. He just had this great left hand and not much else. Roach built him into an outstanding all-around two-handed fighter. And since the Marquez loss, 
uh, he's added a, another dimension of just a little more movement himself, a little more boxing, working behind the jab a little more. He still has this explosiveness, though, where he'll hop in and hop out and fire off one or two really quick punches uh, that are very difficult for anyone to react to fast enough to avoid them. So there's going to be uh, the first few rounds are going to be very interesting to see whether Pacquiao tries to outbox. Mayweather, who everyone would agree is the superior boxer, that Pacquiao might nevertheless try to beat him at his own game as opposed to just darting in and letting his hands go and and seeing what happens. Uh, I will say that uh, a year and a half ago, Mayweather fought Canelo Alvarez and completely shut him out over 12 rounds. It wasn't remotely competitive because Canelo, who most believed should have tried to brawl with Mayweather and, and beat him with size and power, thought he might try to outbox Mayweather, and it was hopeless. Um, So at the very least, I will say, I think if Pacquiao attempts something like that, we'll see an adjustment if it's not working. Uh, He's got the experience to to make adjustments, and this could be the kind of fight where we see a few different mini-fights within the fight as these guys try to figure out what's going to work best. So we should say uh, Pacquiao is about a two and a half or three to one underdog. How much of a chance does this fight have to? All right, let's not overstate it. Save boxing, but really elevate boxing. It's going to be walled off in, behind pay per view, and people. It's five years past when you know there was a fever pitch for it, and people are just following boxing less and less. So. Is this uh, fight being looked upon to be something that it can't be? And they're going to charge like 90 bucks for the pay-per-view, right? Yeah, we haven't heard the exact price yet, but it's where we're, the rumor is uh, 89.95 for standard definition, 99.95 if you want the HD, something like that. I love the Larry Merchant quote on this that nothing will ever save boxing and nothing will ever kill boxing, uh, and that's where the sport is right now. It's in that nether region where it is a cult sport. It uh, is not a mainstream sport. It hasn't been for quite a while. But on nights like this, it becomes a mainstream sport temporarily, moves to the center of the sporting universe uh, for a moment. And for the for those who follow the sport week in and week out, day in and day out, it's great to just have these, these sort of events come along every once in a while. We wish they were more frequent, but that's why boxing fans were so thrilled when this finally got signed, because we like for people to care about our sport uh, a little bit, even if uh, you know some of the mainstream media will will drive us nuts with their pretending to be experts uh, of a, on a sport that they you know follow one, once every couple of years. But Eric, Eric mainstream media here um, chiming in. There's <laughs> I'm not targeting you guys. No, no, no. Uh, but think, there's nothing. I think everyone who uh, watches uh, <clears throat> first take knows who I'm targeting. So. But there's nothing after this. This is it. There's no big fight. Like what else? What else could there be? We've been waiting for this. For five years, there are no other famous fighters out there that well, have we can any. Hope for a huge, a huge mistake by the judges, and then a rematch. That's right. There, this could be scenario. a this could be a trilogy or something. But you know, I was trying to look up like who is the. I mean, maybe maybe we just don't know who the next up and comer is, and I'm being short sighted. But or maybe we need to ask Eric that, or I can't pronounce, <laughs> well, or I can't pronounce the name of all those Thai guys. This has happened uh, repeatedly throughout history that we thought when. This guy retires when Ali's gone, when Tyson's gone, when Delahoy is gone, that there will be nobody else, and someone has always stepped up to fill that void. Uh, at the moment, there are guys like uh, Gennady Golovkin. Uh, m- m- most of the best up-and-coming fighters are coming out of former Soviet Union countries. That's where they're developing these days. And Gennady Golovkin from Kazakhstan has captured the imagination of all the hardcore fight fans and is starting to cross over into the mainstream. There will be someone... I don't know yet who it is, but I don't believe this is the last big fight we'll ever see. So Floyd Mayweather is um, a pretty terrible person, I think. Um, <laughs> it, it, just going out on a limb. I'm just going out on Hot a limb. Hot take, Josh Levine. So we can just talk specifically about things he said about Manny Pacquiao. We could go on for a long time there. Once I stomp the midget, I'll make that queer, make me a sushi roll and cook me some rice. He apologized for that. So it's cool, I guess. Um, and then we could go through all of his domestic <laughs> violence. Convictions? Is there is there anything redeeming? He was imprisoned about Floyd. He was imprisoned. Like, is is there any reason to root for this guy, Eric? Uh, in my opinion, no. I, I do not root for him. I cannot root for him. The only reason to root for him, I suppose, 
would be that you are just so impressed by his sublime skills that for you they overrule all of his outside the ring transgressions. It's the classic, can you separate the artist from the the art? (laughs) Exactly. But uh, no, uh, he is by all accounts, uh, whether in real life or the character that he plays on uh, on All Access and 24-7, which is a perhaps a slight amplification of the jerk that he really is. He is, by all accounts, a- a- an absolutely despicable person, very few redeeming qualities, but he does have a huge fan base. Uh, nevertheless, uh, some people like to root for uh, the bad guy. Some people just uh, admire his talent. Many people buy his pay-per-views in hopes of seeing him lose, but he also does have a pretty big fan base that roots for him to win. You know, it does seem as if the boxing media and the boxing establishment have chosen to overlook or play down Mayweather's overall loathsomeness. Daniel Roberts has a, had a terrific piece up on Deadspin last summer cataloging uh, Mayweather's endless, seemingly list of physical assaults on women and the coddled treatment that he received afterward. And part of that piece goes into how the mainstream media and the boxing media have kind of sort of given Mayweather a pass and chosen to focus on, you know, his marketability and his a box office draw and his outlandish statements and how he gambles his success a lot. and how he gambles a lot. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, in other sports, I'm not sure this guy gets to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know about the, whether he would get to keep going to, to, to that extent, but the free pass, absolutely. He has gotten that from a lot of places. I, the defense that some of those writers have offered is, well, I reported on it when he got accused of it and when he went to jail, and now why do I need to keep dwelling on it uh, if it's not relevant to, say, this upcoming fight? But it is something that should be magnified more than it has been. You can understand why when they do the documentary stuff on Showtime, uh, which is meant to promote him and his fights, they might want to sweep it under the rug. But, you know, those aren't meant to be real journalism. Real journalists absolutely should be acknowledging the Floyd Mayweather outside the ring along with the Floyd Mayweather inside the ring because it is a very troubling history that he has put together here. And uh, he, in a way, though, again, it helps promote fights like this where you have such a clear good guy in Pacquiao that all the negativity that surrounds Mayweather helps create this very simple black-and-white narrative. And part of uh, the negatives on him is that the reason we haven't had this fight so much is, as I perceive it, mostly Floyd Mayweather's doing, especially with drug tests and whatever other nonsense you want to throw in there. You're saying that he's the main reason the fight hadn't happened till now? It seems to me, am I right? Yes, I I agree completely. And uh, I had written a piece for Grantland back in 2011 that focused on how overly protective he was of the zero at the end of his record. And ultimately, I think that's the biggest reason the fight hadn't happened till now, that he's now now 47-0, and and that is like such a cornerstone of his claims, uh, ridiculous claims, by the way, to being the greatest fighter of all time. Uh, but he, has, he thinks as long as he has a zero at the end of his record, he can make that claim. And even if he believed he would beat Manny Pacquiao, I think he had just enough doubt about it that he preferred to take fights he was much more sure he would win. And that's the biggest reason the fight didn't happen until now. All right, Eric. Um, thanks so much uh, for coming on. And to the extent that you can get your money's worth, for a $100 pay-per-view, this seems like a fight that'll go the distance. These guys don't knock anybody out. Um, right. It's not going to be a case where it's going to last for 45 seconds and then, That's right. then you'll it's be like done. It's eight, eight and a quarter a round. Come on. <laughs> Cheap at half yeah, the price. I, I think a, a, a distance fight is the most likely scenario here for sure. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, guys. Eric Raskin writes about boxing for Grantland, Playboy, and HBO.com. He's also the author of the moneymaker effect, the inside story of the tournament that forever changed poker. Now it is time for our uh, sponsor of the week, which is The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx, which airs Sundays at 8 on HBO, is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. I've looked up some fun facts about Robert Durst. Last year, he was fined $500 
after allegedly urinating on a bunch of candy at a CVS after picking up a prescription. Uh, not a common reaction to uh, picking up a prescription at CBS, but uh, that's Robert Durst for you. In 2006, the New York Times reported that he cut ties with his family in exchange for a payout of $65 million. And according to the New York Post, investigators are watching every minute of this new HBO miniseries, hoping to gather evidence that could help them solve a handful of murders that Durst may or may not be involved in. The jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind capturing the Freedmans. It was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. Slate TV critic Willa Paskin raved about the jinx, calling it unnerving and engrossing. And if you want to be engrossed yourself, you can catch the jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst on Sundays at 8 only on HBO. Alex Rodriguez and Kobe Bryant have a lot in common. They both went to the pros straight out of high school. They're among the most talented athletes in their respective sports. They've made a lot of money. They've been at the center of a bunch of different scandals. They've won championships, though A-Rod has just one while Kobe has five rings. And as they enter the final stretch of their careers, A-Rod is 39, Kobe is 36. They've both been beset by injuries that have kept them out of uniform for long stretches. Earlier in their careers, they were also both dogged by reputations for inauthenticity. In a recent essay for GQ, Chuck Klosterman writes that Bryant used to come across like Grant Hill trying to impersonate Allen Iverson. And now we come to the biggest difference between these two guys, at least in terms of how they're perceived. Kobe, who has been giving a series of interviews in advance of his new Showtime documentary, Kobe Bryant's Muse, is now, in Klosterman's words, the last hard man, the realist of the real. And A-Rod, who after finishing up a season-long suspension for PED use, just wrote a handwritten apology letter to his quote-unquote fans, and he comes across as just as phony as ever. I don't think that point is really arguable, Mike. If you want to disagree, go for it. Um, If not, we can just puzzle through why these two guys who are similar in so many ways come across so differently. I think they're similar for the reasons you set out. Great athletes at the top of their game. If we kind of picked any two, we'd probably have a large overlap. But it's it's more than just random with them. But there's such a fundamental difference, and it's this. A-Rod is supremely unconfident, and Kobe Bryant is, I mean, we throw the the terms like sociopath around a lot, but it does seem that he is confident, bordering on arrogant, bordering on possibly having a personality disorder. And I think that pretty much drives all of them. Now, the, the They just nature, have different personality disorders. Yeah. The nature of the sport is that Kobe's supreme confidence helps him more. He can take over a game. And his decision, whether, you know, on a b- basketball court, if he says, this is mine, well, that matters. But if A-Rod says, this is mine, what does that mean? You know, you just have to do what you can and the ball's hit to you or in your at-bats. So confidence is certainly a good thing for an athlete to have him. I'm sure A-Rod has it in some ways, but the guy just doesn't know who he is. And that huge uh, ESPN magazine profile by Moringer, I thought was pretty good. I don't like spending time with A-Rod, but if I'm going to, I don't know if it explained him more, but it did at least throw a couple phrases out there that got me to thinking he is a unique player, not in a good way, but not in a horrible way. He has this weird niche. You wouldn't think that someone with his personality traits would be able to be as good as he was. You would think that someone with his personality traits would go through all this uh, steroid nonsense. But so A-Rod's a really surprising guy and yet not one that I want to spend too much time pondering. I think there's some other key differences between these two athletes. Um, If you're going to go into the childhood psychoanalysis part, Kobe had a stable upbringing, successful parents. He was more worldly. He spent time in Italy. He was gifted from a very early age. A-Rod did not have that kind of an upbringing. His father left. The J.R. Moringer story in ESPN makes a lot out of you know, the the sort of tortured analysis of, of A-Rod's uh, childhood psyche. Um, he wasn't a sports legacy the way Kobe was. But I think the main difference is that Kobe is clearly an intelligent guy. 
Um, he is more self-aware. He is less self. He's less self-conscious. He is clearly less insecure. I mean, were it not for the sexual assault allegation against Kobe Bryant when he was 24 years old in Colorado, I wonder how we would view him personally, the totality of his career without those allegations. I mean, A-Rod started using steroids, he admitted, when he was also 24 years old. So these were early career um, scandals that surrounded these guys. Of course, Kobe's came out at the time and A-Rod's didn't come out until several years later. So now we're in a point where both of these guys had to overcome these things that they did when they were 24. You know, unlike A-Rod, Kobe is believable now when he opens his mouth. I think the, the interview with Klosterman was terrific. This is a guy that's sort of unfiltered. He says intelligent things. Um, he makes great points. He clearly thinks about things very deeply, and he's very honest. Moringer's article doesn't even quote A-Rod, and Moringer makes a big sort of capital W writerly deal about not quoting him, and he goes into a six-paragraph sort of spiel about what that means. But there's a clear difference between you know the, the, what these guys have to say. Yeah, I watched the interview that Kobe did on the Grantland uh, ESPN show with Bill Simmons and Jalen Rose last night where he was on the show for an hour. And I wasn't expecting to sit there and watch the whole thing. But I wanted to hear what he had to say. Like I ended up watching the entire show. And you do just get the sense that Kobe at this point in his life and his career is this truth teller and that when he says um, sort of like Kevin Durant did and we talked about it last week – He's been a little bit more canny in his self-presentation, Kobe, I think, when he says, you know, I'm tired of being not myself. Like, you you get the sense that it's real, um, that it's authentic. And with A-Rod, I just don't think there's ever been as big a gradient between, like, the factors that go into charisma, you know, his personal appearance and his talent and his actual charisma. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why we perceive him as so phony and we don't want to spend time with him because you look at the guy and you're like, I should like you a lot more than I actually do. It's it's not just that we don't like him. It's that there's so much potential there, that there's so much possibility. And we do forget that Kobe back, um, as Klosterman points out, that yeah. back in his early life and early career, that there was something fraudulent about him, that you felt like he was imitating Michael Jordan on the court and off the court, that he really didn't fit in when he came back from Italy and that he figured it out. He at least figured out how to craft a persona that we wanted to be around or that we um, that we liked, that we, we would admire could respect, athletically. We could admire. And part of yes. that, I think, is winning the five championships. And I think you're astute, Mike, in pointing out that in baseball, like if you're a pitcher, you can dominate the game. If you're Pedro Martinez, if you're Randy Johnson, you can kind of have dominion over the field in this way that Kobe Bryant at his best does on a basketball court. And in baseball, from the offensive side, the only guy in recent memory who's done that is Barry Bonds. And that's why I thought it was interesting that part of that 12,000-word Moringa profile, Mike, is that he goes and, like, is at the heel of Barry Bonds and wants to learn from him about how he came to dominate baseball games like he did. Yeah, he, I mean, at, even at this age, maybe because he came into the league so young and he's, I can't even say he changed teams. He's done it. He's had three different teams. He just seems to have uh, not gathered any sort of wisdom. He doesn't have a support network that is at all functional. And, you know, we talk about in the shorthand of A-Rod as a polarizing figure. He's not. He's a unifying figure. No one likes him. I mean, Except I for Susan to Waldman. I talk to all those, even Mike Francesa doesn't. I talk to all those protesters outside the MLB offices who are mostly put up by uh, local politicians from the Bronx and a lot of them with Dominican roots. And many of them didn't even know why they were there. And then they would always give you guarded answers. And so some of what they were saying is, yeah, we feel he's being victimized. Like, you know, Dominicans tend to get victimized. Like, you really identify him as a Dominican? Well, you know, he lived there and he, yeah, I understand. But it just seems like there's no one who's ever able to offer a full-throated defense of uh, A-Rod. Like, you can, Kobe. I mean, the fans of the Lakers, he might frustrate them, but he, A, delivered the goods much more in a more real way than A-Rod ever did with his one championship. 
And, you know, he is polarizing because if he is your guy, you know, there have been years where you'd rather have him have the ball down the stretch than anyone in his sport. Whereas A-Rod, you kind of are as great as he is with the regular season in the clutch. He was terrible. And that's a big part of why even his own fans have, or the fans of his own team have a weird relationship. Except for 2009 him. when he did perform yeah, he had one, extremely yeah, well. That's right. right. And they won yeah, the World and Series. And he has the one championship. And, yeah. Yeah. But let's, let's unpack the J.R. Moringer profile a little bit and try to understand the the roots and the, the reasons that it exists. I mean, it didn't just come from heaven. It wasn't as if J.R. Moringer happened to be hanging around A-Rod and, and A-Rod said, oh, you seem like a good guy. Stick around for six months. I mean, this is part of the rehabilitation of Alex Rodriguez leading up to spring training and this season. Um, Moringer was given what seems like pretty great access, at least over several days, several different times. Moringer writes what I think is a, a fairly, I don't want to say gullible, but but certainly positive explication of the things that Alex Rodriguez is doing to try to change who he is from going to a therapist to taking a college class to visiting Barry Bonds, not to sort of understand how Barry Bonds got through the scandalous part of his career, but to learn to be a better baseball player at, at in his late 30s and early 40s. But it felt very transparent to me. And I think the reason it felt transparent is that I don't believe anything Alex Rodriguez does or says because I'm conditioned not to. Um, Josh sent around the transcript of A-Rod's press conference in 2009 after he admitted to taking steroids in the early 2000s and it's the same sort of i'm changing as a person and i have to look inside myself and i'm going to be a better human I'll being i'll also admit that i sent that around by accident not realizing that it was the old press conference and then mm. i started reading it and i was like wait i think he's talking about not the Tony Bosch biogenesis stuff. And I went back, scrolled to the top and saw it was 2009. I was confused. I thought it was his new PED apology press conference. Now, that one was written only because Comic Sans wasn't available. <laughs> um, I think that's his real handwriting, by the way, on his handwritten <laughs> apology? Or do you think that is a his, font? His open loops on his L's yeah. indicate that he's now open to... Yeah. No, actually, as the uh, middle hump on Major League Baseball indicates that he is deeply insecure. That is <laughs> that is something the graphologists have said. I thought the Moringer profile was annoying in terms of its prose style. But it was I did, trying to be Gary Smith. But I did feel like it was astute in that, you know, you say that he was gullible. He didn't – he certainly didn't make it seem like Alex Rodriguez was being particularly candid with no. anyone, and including him. And that – is the big difference. I think that Kobe's championships certainly allow him to present himself as the hardest working man in basketball show business um, and that that wouldn't work if they never won any titles. But I think the the bigger thing is just the perception slash reality of candor. And in this stage of his life and career, Kobe comes across as someone who is being 100% honest with you. That wasn't the case with him, whether it was about sexual assault allegations or whether it was about just anything um, earlier in his career. And Alex Rodriguez, for whatever reason, has never been able to do that, probably will never be able to do that, whether he's you know writing stuff out in cursive or sitting for a magazine profile or sitting um, at a press conference. It's just not in his skill set. And this is how we judge athletes by self-presentation. The man just doesn't have it. Yeah. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's fair to judge him by self-presentation. I mean, that's what he wants to be judged by. Because if you judge him by the numbers, then you get into deeper questions of steroid use and... Oh, you know, a number that I judge him by, too, is the 44 he got on his marketing <laughs> test. <laughs> Quiz, yeah. It's so funny. The whole the thing starts off with A-Rod's in a class. Uh, he's going back to school. And so you say to yourself, oh, OK, that's just, you know, some other PR thing or how rigorous will the training be? And he reveals or at least the reporter found out that he got a 44 on this test, thus demonstrating what Stefan was saying before, possibly not that smart a guy. I don't know. It just he's hapless for for everything in the world that he has. He's hapless and you don't feel sorry for him. Yeah. Well, Yankees analyst Susan Waldman, I alluded to this before. She's like the broadcaster on Yankees Pravda. I was just 
Googling to try to find A-Rod stories in Google News, and this headline came up, Yankees analyst Susan Waldman, Alex Rodriguez, quote, impossible to dislike. I had to reread that about eight times to make sure I wasn't missing any double negatives. Alex Rodriguez, impossible to dislike, says Susan Waldman. Let's now talk about Slate Plus, the membership program wherein for $5 a month or $50 a year, you get early access to events, members-only articles, special podcasts, and extra segments on shows like the Political and Cultural Gabfests and this very show that you are listening to right now. This week, we're going to talk about the evolving weirdness of Balgazi. And in bonus segments from the recent past, we've discussed Key and Peele's football sketches. And in one of my favorite discussions, bonus or otherwise, we had NBC football producer Fred Gadelli tell us about the decisions he made in broadcasting Odell Beckham Jr.'s amazing one-handed catch. If you want to hear that stuff, get Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash hangupplus. By using that URL, the plus poobahs will know that Hang Up and Listen sent you there. That is slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, Stefan, let's keep this last segment snappy. No retakes, no coughing, no water breaks, Mike, no stepping away from the microphone to grab your crotch. We're, right. we are, we're taking our lead from Major League Baseball, which announced some new rules designed to make games faster. Managers will have to stay in the dugout for replay challenges. Hitters won't be allowed to step out of the box during at-bats, and games must now begin promptly after commercial breaks. According to ESPN.com, players who violate the rules will receive a warning with flagrant violators subject to a series of fines up to $500. That not-so-steep punishment structure makes it clear that at this early stage, these rule changes will probably be more like polite suggestions so will this stuff make any difference qualitatively uh, in making baseball less stultifying, quantitatively, and making games shorter? Uh, what do you think, Mike? Oh, I think that these are all necessary steps. And they're smart because they don't get to anything that is competitive. So I don't know if the answer is needs. This will shave a minute or two off the uh, delays. But what baseball would most like to reform if they could is the amount of time the pitcher holds the ball and looks over and holds the ball. But that does have a strategic value, right? At least I'll say it does, to screw with the timing of the runners. I mean, that in some way has an impact on the game. We're stepping out of the batter's box, keeping one foot in the batter's box. That's in the rule. That's enforcing a rule. The amount of time, putting up clocks in the stadium to time the pitch as they warm up. It's weird to have clocks in a stadium, but that's warming up. That's not timing a delivery to the mound. So I think they basically checked off all the stuff they could do without getting into anything that really could have an impact on the actual game. So before um, these rules were announced, we heard that there are going to be pitch clocks in AA and AAA stadiums that are going to enforce an existing rule, a rule that's on the books about how long a pitcher can hold the ball before it's released before they throw it to the plate. That has to be approved by the Major League Players Association. They can do experiments on minor league players. They're just like D.C. where they can you know, impose school vouchers or whatever else they want on us. The minor league players, they have no say in anything. So they're going to try that out. They're not going to do it in the major leagues. And like Mike was saying, Stefan, these are smaller adjustments, maybe ones that won't affect how the game is played in any material way. And I think that was that's clearly was the idea here, and everyone's written about it, that that was the idea. Don't screw with you know, how the players play the game. You know, in the fall league in Arizona, they did do that 20-second pitch clock. They limited conferences on the pitcher's mound. I mean, a lot of this came out of uh, some experiments that began last year in the uh, in an independent league, in the Atlantic League. You know, indie leagues are great laboratories, too. And they quickly shaved like 10 minutes off the length. And these are like double-A equivalent games that don't have you know, long commercial breaks for television. Um, they quickly shaved like 10 minutes off of games, doing things that were more intrusive on the play of the sport. But nonetheless, it works. So I think there is potential here to do this. The idea is to acculturate the players, to change the way they approach batting or throwing the ball. It's not to penalize them in the run of play for these for these transgressions, but to sort of change the culture of the sport. And that could take time. You know, the game has grown by, what, 30 minutes per game over the last three decades? That's a long time. 309. I mean, you, know, you get different times if you look at different sources, but um, Baseball Prospectus 
has it at 309 per game in 2014. And it was like 230 in 1981. 240 in 1984, 229 in 1974. So roughly, yeah. Um, but are the players being blamed for changes in, in the game with, a, with every game being televised? I mean, there are long commercial breaks between innings. So I think that has that's contributing. And they're not going to cut down on that. So they're going to focus on what the players do. At the same time, I am highly frustrated by guys stepping out um, in between every pitch. And so that, to me, seems like an absolutely dead, simple, obvious fix that I wish they had gone to years ago. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Rendon of the uh, Washington Nationals says he doesn't watch baseball because it's too long and boring. And if you asked a lot of these guys, I bet they'd say that too, especially the American ones who uh, grew up with other sports available. Or why not even all the international players? Soccer is a little bit more exciting. So I don't think you're going to get a lot of pushback from the players like, no, we need our time to adjust our gloves 300 times. You know, just from a logical or a human behavior point of view, if you have no rule on something and say, do whatever you want, you'll do. If you, you could maybe develop a routine that involves stepping out of the bat box and readjusting your gloves. And if you're in that routine, maybe you don't want to have to modify it, but coming up, once it's communicated to you that your routine cannot involve that, then it won't involve that. Look at free throw shooting in basketball. You know, there is a, what is it, 10 or 15 seconds? I forget, but you are on a count. I think it's a 10 second count when you shoot a free throw. And that's one of the reasons we don't see guys just doing the baseball equivalent of walking around inside the box, getting themselves ready for a free throw. It's just not allowed. And if it were allowed, we would see that. So I think that everyone is on board with this. And the other good reform is right when the commercial is going to end, the guy needs right. to be in the box. And there's no reason not to be. Who cares? So like you're on deck swinging a bat for four, um, two and a half minutes instead of three minutes. So I think the more interesting debate then is about the pitch clock. Buster Olney makes the argument that it's now an inevitability because there's so much gray area like you're allowed to step out of the box now. They made some exceptions where if, you know, you tip the ball or something like that. And he says like, oh, that now it's going to be umpire A is going to allow you to step out for, you know, he's going to be more liberal. There's a bunch of exceptions, actually. Swinging at a pitch, foul ball, foul tips, if the hitter's brushed back by a pitch and or time is granted by the umpire uh, and wild pitches. Okay, so let's assume then that the pitch clock is going to happen at some point. It is going to happen in AA or AAA. Are you more hesitant about that? Are you more critical about that? John Lester said, you know, part of baseball's beauty is that there's no time limit. There's no shot clock. So that's the the tension there. It's between Anthony Rendon saying baseball is too boring and I never watch it, and John Lester saying baseball's beauty is that there's no time limit. There's still no time limit. The, the, the <laughs> clock is the number of outs. He, you know, I don't even know if Lester is trying to argue against these changes. It's true. Baseball is weird in that it's timed by the internal clock of number of outs. That is baseball's beauty, that there is no clock. That doesn't mean that every component of it can happen in the most uh, casual and languorous way. Is that a word? Is that what the word I'm trying to go languorous. for? Languorous. Yeah, languorous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, baseball's beauty is that it's pastoral, Mike. It uh, harkens back to a simpler harken. time. Anything with hearkening, we're yeah. all in trouble. Yeah. Um, I think a pitch clock is inevitable, too. And it doesn't have to be rigid. It doesn't have to be an alarm goes off at 20 seconds. Again, it's in the control of the umpire. So I think that there's, there's going to be a gradual There's a movement. large digital readout of numbers counting down. There is a kind of inherent rigidness to that, isn't there? Well, I mean, I think that there are going to be, again, I think there will be exceptions. There will be carve-outs there. The umpire is going to have the thing in his pocket to start the clock. And I think there are going to be ways to make it not as intrusive as, as you might fear it might become. But again, the larger point is that baseball doesn't want to do that because it doesn't want Rob Manfred, as his first act as commissioner, doesn't want to be seen as imposing some sort of rigid structural changes on you know this 150-year-old game. He wants to find a way to change the behaviors of the people that play the game. Um, a $500 fine, obviously, is not going to dissuade someone from, you know, in a, in a crucial moment from stepping out of the box and readjusting his crotch or his gloves. Um, but if it does, if it does change the culture on a team and get players practicing, preparing to not behave in those dilatory ways, then the game's going to change over time. 
there's obviously not a direct correlation between length of game and game excitement, right? Like if the if games are two and a half hours long, it doesn't necessarily mean that baseball is a nonstop thrill ride. I mean, no. the longer game probably gets you further away from the game being exci- exciting, except maybe in the playoffs and the eighth inning when there is an added tension when a guy steps out and you're just sitting there in anticipation. You just want to be sitting there in anticipation. And Fox cuts to a close-up of some fan in the stands for three seconds. Right. You you want it to be languorous and dilatory at the points when it should be Well, let's also be clear. The game has grown in length because of strategic changes in the game, too. Players taking more pitches, more pitching changes. I mean, there are fundamental changes in the way baseball's been played. Also, when a game... You're right. It, you, there's not a direct correlation between length and quality, but when the quality isn't good and the game is long, it's right. like Transformers 3 having a running time of 2.44. Mm-hmm. It's so appalling that it drives people away from baseball. So there's this concept of failing poorly. Like, maybe they could just structure it internally as what we have to do is avoid terrible games that last three and a half hours. Like, that's the number one priority. Let's look at the the 30 worst games last year. By definition, were these huge blowouts or these very boring games that lasted three and a half hours. We've got to do whatever we can to not let that happen. 18% of games lasted three and a half hours or more in 2014, 4% in 1984. That's... That's that's pretty telling. But isn't the joke that the food is terrible and and such, such small, small portions. portions? So wouldn't it be better if the games were terrible and they were really long? Or did the borscht belt get it wrong? Thanks to contemplate. Let's do afterballs. Mike Hargrove was known as the human rain delay, which is a nickname that I always loved. Uh, he played twelve years. That was very sincere of me. He played twelve <laughs> years with Texas, Cleveland, and San Diego. Uh, then became the manager of the Indians. According to the site Miscellaneous Baseball, Hargrove said that he tried to eliminate his routine as much as possible. He was known as the human rain delay because he would adjust his gloves and step out between every pitch, which was a very kind of outre thing to do at the time in the 80s. Um, He said that it eventually became a distraction for him because he never stopped hearing about it. The league was concerned. The fans were screaming. The press was all over me. I just got tired of it. Um, He was just a man before his time. The human rain delay. Mike Pesca, always a man, a few steps ahead of the prevailing trends. What is your uh, human rain delay? So my cable system, actually, I have no cable system. I've disclosed <laughs> that. But I go to the gym and the local cable system, which is uh, has sports, SNY, what that, Sports New York. They got a contract for UConn women's basketball. And it always seems, the game always seems to start at 7. And so I lift weights and then I hit the treadmill. And so I always am turning on the UConn women's game with about 10 minutes left in the second half. Now, I was kind of excited to watch a little UConn women's basketball. I'm aware of UConn women's basketball. Basketball a couple years ago when they were going for the streak, I covered them. Come tournament time, maybe they'll win a national championship, most likely. This year, early in the year, the fourth game, they lose to Stanford. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, maybe they're not the dominant Husky team they once were. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because... I just I didn't do any formalized study of this. I just noticed that every time I got on the elliptical, the treadmill or whatever, and put on the UConn women's basketball game, they were winning by 50. Like, this didn't happen once. This didn't happen twice. They were up by 40 almost every time. So I went back and I began with, like I said, in the beginning of the year, they did start with 115 to 26 win over West Chester. But I've never heard of West Chester. So let's start with 2015. Just outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, but it's not a college that plays basketball. It's maybe no, just like... They're no incarnate word. Yeah, yeah no. They're no right. Houston Tlotson. But I think it's just like, you know, they put up a flyer in the town square and whoever wanted to play the Lady <laughs> Husky. Student Union. To, yeah. So I went back, a bunch of games, and I went to see the average lead or where the Yukon Lady Huskies were in their games with 10 minutes left. Because, you know, those last 10 minutes of garbage time, that's when the blowout happens, right? Mm-mm. Against Cincinnati, they were up 71-32. Against Temple, they were up 63-39. Against East Carolina, I'll stop giving the scores. I'll just give the margin. Against East Carolina, they were up 42. Against Cincinnati, they were up 54. Against UCF, they were up, what's uh, 82 minus 34? 48. Against uh, USF, they were up 33. Temple, 41. Against SMU, the score was 71-9 to with 11 minutes, 47 seconds left. No. The Mustangs were without second-leading scorer Destiny Hives-McCray, who is suspended for violation of team's rules. 
The Huskies were at 47 to 9 at halftime, and they reeled off the first 27 points of the second half to take that 60, uh, 62 point lead against Tulsa. They led by 44. I'm not leaving any games out. St. John's kept them to within 19. That's pretty good against Memphis, 20, 55, 24. Then there was the number two team in the country. South Carolina comes in, the number one team. How would they do? South Carolina did not do well. The final score of that game was 87 to 62. And since then, against Tulane, they were up by 40. Against Houston, they were up by 41. Against Tulsa, they were up by 45. This year, calendar year 2015, 10 minutes left in the game. The average UConn lead has been 41 points. This is horribly boring basketball. Like we talked about what happened once the Big East broke up. Well, the conference, this USA, this American basketball conference that UConn is in. For the men's team, they're at least playing competitive games. SMU is ranked. The women's team has just absolutely no one who could go up against them. And so until, I'm going to say deep into the tournament, we're not going to get anything close to a single digit with 10 minutes left. Yeah, this was a big consideration, or at least was talked about a lot, that moving into this conference would really hurt UConn women's basketball. I mean, at least it hurts them in terms of not being able to play competitive games. I wonder if there's an argument for them just to go independent in women's basketball and just play a, like a full national schedule, like you know Notre Dame football does yeah. or something like that. Well, what's I mean, your up nine? What's your up seventy four to nine in conference play? I mean, how much worse an opponent can you get? Hey, Mike, it was only seventy one to nine. Seventy one to nine. That's right. They did well, take a seventy. No, they took a seventy four to nine lead, but it was only seventy one to nine. Oh, at ten at minutes. The ten minute mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went. It was. <laughs> I didn't than, realize that. That wasn't the biggest lead of the game. Oh no. <laughs> All right, Stefan, what is your human rain delay? On the opening possession of North Carolina's game against Georgia Tech over the weekend, Coach Roy Williams brought the Tar Heels out in the four corners offense point guard in the middle of the floor, four other players in the four corners of the front court. Williams held up four fingers. Older folks in the crowd figured out what was going on, and North Carolina even scored on a backdoor layup. It was a lovely tribute to the late Dean Smith. Smith, you may or may not know, Josh, did not invent the offensive scheme with which he was synonymous, and he never took credit for inventing it. In his autobiography, Smith acknowledged that other coaches ran similar formations. The first appears to have been John McClendon, who coached at predominantly black North Carolina College and Tennessee State, and he ran something called a two-in-a-corner. Chuck No of South Carolina ran the Mongoose, three players at midcourt, two near the basket. Neil Baisi at West Virginia Tech in the 50s and 60s also ran a stall, but he also coached teams that averaged more than 100 points a game five times. Another misconception is that the four corners was used only for stalling by spreading the players around the front court. When Phil Ford ran the point at North Carolina in the 1970s, the team often racked up totally normal scores. I watched some video of a UNC-Duke game, and Ford and the four corners is mesmerizing. UNC won that game 78-70. to 70. But yes, more often than not, the four corners was designed to slow the game down. The point guard would hold or dribble the ball if he was closely guarded, and this rule still applies. He had five seconds to pass, shoot, or dribble past the defender. Typically, the nearest corner man would come to help, get a pass, and then pass it right back to the point guard. The most infamous case in the Smith era occurred in 1979 at Cameron Indoor Stadium in Durham. Sixth-ranked Duke came out in its 2-3 matchup zone defense to try to force Duke out of that formation. Fourth-ranked North Carolina came out in the four corners. It didn't work. Neither side would budge, and the score at the half was 7 to nothing Duke. The coaches then decided to play basketball in the second half, and the team scored 40 points apiece. Now, in this time before the shot clock, scores like 47-40 were hardly anomalous. During my time at Penn, we beat Princeton 43-40, 46-43, and 41-39, and we thought nothing of it. Frankly, the games were great. Intentional stalls also worked. Dean Smith boasted that between 1966 and 1972, the Tar Heels went into the four corners 107 times to protect the lead, and they won all but twice. A 1982 Sports Illustrated story calling for the introduction of a shot clock noted that in a game against Kentucky, Notre Dame passed the ball 213 times before shooting. That's in one possession. In the ACC championship game that year, UNC held the ball for the final eight minutes to preserve a one-point lead against Ralph Sampson and Virginia, which didn't foul until half a minute was left and lost by two. 
But the peak or nadir of the pre-shot clock era occurred in 1968 in the ACC tournament semifinal. Duke, coached by Vic Bubis, was ranked number six. North Carolina State, under Norm Sloan, was unranked and undersized. Sloan knew he couldn't compete with Duke, so he put his two forwards out near midcourt and challenged Duke to come out of its zone defense. It wouldn't, so 6'6 forward Bill Kretzer just stood there dribbling. When he got tired, he passed it to someone for a few seconds. Players chatted in the lane. At one point, two Wolfpack walked over to the sideline to talk to Sloan. The coach's wife sent their eight-year-old son to the sideline with a question. Mama wants to know what's going on, the kid asked. The score at halftime was 4-2 to two, Duke. After a flurry of scoring to open the second half, Duke was up 8-6. Sloan ordered Kretzer to hold the ball again. This time he dribbled continuously for 13 minutes and 45 seconds. Duke stubbornly did nothing. According to an account of the game on NC State's website, the radio and TV broadcasts went to commercial during play and didn't miss anything. One announcer said, This game is about as exciting as watching artificial insemination. With two and a half minutes to go, NC State scored to tie the game at eight. Duke hit a free throw. NC State then went up 10-9 with 40 seconds left, and then 11-9 with 16 seconds to go. Duke then made a free throw to make it 11-10, but it missed the tying free throw. NC State wrapped up the scoring with a free throw of its own with three seconds left. Final score, NC State 12, Duke 10. Sloan wrote in his autobiography that Bubas let his ego take over and thought he'd make a fool of myself. All he had to do was come out after us and they would have blown us out of the building. A shot clock was finally imposed in the ACC in 1983 and across college basketball in 1985. But 12-10, 7-0 at the half. That was just awesome. That's an analogy that's never really caught on, like uh, watching paint dry. Watching grass grow, like watching artificial insemination. He thought he was ahead of his time. Didn't work out for him. Josh, what's your human rain delay? If you're at all interested in baseball history, you need to follow John Thorne on Twitter. John is the official historian of Major League Baseball past Hang Up and Listen guest. Um, If you're following him over the weekend, you would know, as I do, about Professor Hinton's mechanical pitcher, the first ever baseball pitching machine. British mathematician Charles Howard Hinton described his invention in an 1897 issue of Harper's Weekly magazine. Hinton said he first tried to modify a catapult, but this device failed altogether in point of accuracy or aim. And then he got an idea. At this juncture, it occurred to me that practically whenever men wished to impel a ball with velocity and precision, they drove it out of a tube with powder. At this point in the article, there is a photo, Stefan, of a small child in a newsboy cap with his finger on the trigger of a baseball cannon. Wow. What an all-American image. Especially the newsboy cap. It is. Uh, This presented its own challenges, the baseball cannon. The long tube coming out of the rear of the cannon was originally used to explode the powder in, Hinton writes, but the powder impinging directly on the ball tended to destroy it. For Hinton... The fact that he had created a machine that exploded baseballs was of passing concern. The bigger issue was figuring out how to make the ball curve. He accomplished this by putting artificial fingers in a movable sleeve around the muzzle of his baseball gun. The article concludes, the gun can be used so as to deliver ball after ball at the same speed in the same curve, or it can be varied from shot to shot according to the wish or skill of the manipulator. When we consider the deeply implanted love of shooting, which exists in every boy, it may be reckoned as at least probable that a kind of shooting will come in of a less destructive nature than that which year by year accelerates the destruction of the game of the country. Very idealistic. Yes. Shooting and baseball, two great tastes. They taste great together. <laughs> uh, despite his optimism, Hinton's baseball gun did not actually shoot straight. In 2014, John Thorne wrote on his Our Game blog that Hinton's cannon pitched the last two innings of an 1897 exhibition game between a bunch of old-timey Boston players and a team of Australians. Thorne writes that according to the Boston Globe, the first pitch appeared so suddenly that the batsman ducked. The catcher made a wild leap to one side while the ball sailed directly over the plate 
and up against the backstop with a resounding crack. I guess it did sail directly over the plate. They just weren't ready. You got to get in the batter's mm-hmm. box when you're facing a cannon. Don't be dilly-dallying around. Uh, Rudy Rucker uh, wrote an introduction to the selected writings of Charles H. Hinton. He explains that the Princeton baseball team used the gun for a while, but eventually did abandon it because of the fear it inspired in the batters. <laughs> Hinton was eventually fired from Princeton and brought his baseball gun with him to his next job at the University of Minnesota. But don't get the wrong idea. This wasn't simply a man who shot baseballs out of a cannon. Hinton was obsessed with the fourth dimension, writing articles and pamphlets and books on the subject, and he's credited with coining the word tesseract, which is the 4D analog of a cube. But that's not all, Stefan. Hinton writes the record was nicknamed Bull due to his physical strength, according to the mathematician's obituary. After a Pennsylvania-Princeton football game, Professor Hinton became the myth hero of the students Go Quakers. by throwing bodily over a fence a husky Pennsylvania man who had attempted to snatch a yellow chrysanthemum from the professor's coat. That's what we do at Penn. <laughs> we do not like chrysanthemums. And we don't like Princeton. Two things. Uh, Hinton died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1907. Forty-five years later, Paul Giovanoli invented the arm-style pitching machine, which is okay. I guess. It's no but cannon. It, in my view, it's not a real pitching machine if the ball doesn't smell like burning gunpowder. It reminds me of when we burned tennis balls to play stickball in my youth, which I talked about on the call show not long ago. Burning baseballs, it's, it's a long tradition. It goes way back. All right. Light one on fire for me out there and hang up and listen, Lynn. Uh, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe and iTunes, please. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, Facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember is Elmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.